really psychedelics are just an extension of another way to find a different vantage point, change your perspective, get really still. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo, as always. Today we're talking with my friend Aubrey Marcus. Man, this guy is a, an interesting character. He started a company called Onnit. It's a fitness and nutrition company, and man, they have just exploded onto the scene. No surprise, great team, great products. Today, we're gonna discover what a CEO does every day. It solves little problems, solves big problems, how he has to know a little bit about everything that goes into the way the business works, and how, frankly, most people just are not cut out for this type of thing. And we'll talk about extreme ownership, which we talked about here on Jocko, and how that applies directly in his business, and the pros and cons of running a health-related business under the scrutiny of ambulance-chasing lawyers who hope you fail but mostly we're gonna zoom out and get a little bit more macro, talking about taking negative criticism in stride, handling it the right way, how you get honest feedback and discourage people on your team from becoming yes men, and being mindful of pushing buttons or having our buttons pushed when we're emotionally invested in something so that we can make proper business decisions. There's lots here about how to think when you're running a business or involved in a business as a member of a team and how you can take these principles and lessons and apply them to your own life as well. Now let's hear from Aubrey Marcus. How do you figure out who's gonna be a good fit? We were just talking, Orlando and I, about well, college degree, you know, do I want a degree or do I want to find somebody who just works hard and really believes in the brand? And I brought up that I'd rather have somebody work with us for 90 days and evaluate that rather than looking at the papers and figuring out whether or not they can supposedly work hard according to University of wherever. Right. You know, Tucker Max, who's become a friend, he actually helped influence that. And I always had that kind of instinct that I'd rather get someone who I could just trust to do the job rather than any credentials. But he kind of reframed it in a different way. And he said, look, if you're running a pro sports team, you draft from the minor leagues. If you're running a business and that business is a professional business, you got to draft from the minor leagues. So you got to decide what the minor leagues are. What are the areas that someone could be doing that's not quite at your level, or is at your level, you know, there's free agents. So another company where right, you can same, poach, somebody, poach else. somebody else. But what are the minor leagues? So sometimes the minor leagues are school, but rarely. Like school is its own beast. It really has almost nothing to do with business. The only thing that school is really good at, I think Bertrand Russell said, is teaching someone to do something they don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. So if you have a degree, you know that that person is at least able to do something they don't want to do. The timelines are different. The expectations are different. The practicum is different. So I really like to find someone who's done something significant, been proven that they've been able to be great at something. And then if they're able to be great at something, I think they can be great at the job that I'm asking them to do here. If you're looking at somebody who's maybe taking a meeting with a supplier, how do you know that they're going to be able to perform at the level that you want? Because you can ask them questions, but they can always tailor the answer to you. How do you know what to even look for and evaluate on site? You know, something like that is very kind of specific. Right. You know, for that, it's really about industry experience. What we don't want is to mention ashwagandha and have them look at us with a wide-eyed stare like, what the hell is ashwagandha? You write that down in Google. <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah, right you back. know, so that's an adaptogenic herb, obviously. And if they haven't been in the supplement business, that word, you know, and just the knowledge of what that is, where it comes from, why we want to source it from India, what the markers that we're looking for. So in certain areas, you got to have really specific industry knowledge. In other areas, you can be slightly more of a generalist with a good work ethic and good problem-solving abilities. I mean, ultimately, I started as a generalist. I was a philosophy major for University of Richmond. That does not surprise me. I didn't know that, but that is not a surprise at all. 
that was to me solving the biggest problems. And then, you know, what does a CEO do every day? He solves little problems and he solves big problems. And so it served me well, just training my mind in order to do that. But I've had to learn all of the different areas and rely on experts from all the different areas as well. Do you think you'll ever replace yourself as the CEO? Of course, when you retire, you'll want to do that. But do you think you'll ever go, look, I don't want to do this part of the job anymore. I'd rather do something else inside the business. It's funny that you're asking me that now because I'm just about to bring somebody on board that is better than me at a few of the things that I was like really holding down. <laughs> in the okay, company, barely no. holding it together, you mean? No, no, like really, I was holding down that whole department oh. like with my own personal knowledge. Gotcha. You know, so certain areas of nutrition, certain areas where I'm synthesizing different optimization practices, stacking these different practices. And, you know, I have experts in different areas that I rely on, of course. But as far as someone who could put it all together, like I was that guy. And now I just found a guy that's probably better than me at that. And it was a little bit funny at first because it was like everything I'm looking for. You always want to hire people that are better than you. Yeah. But then there was a little bit of moments that I've had in the past few days where I'm like, wait, what am I here for again? Yeah. What, what is exactly that I do around here? But that's been a cool feeling. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think. There's still certain things on the executive level, you know, the grand vision, the ability to be a leader of the people inside the company and outside the company, my own unique way of expressing things that I'll always have. But, you know, I'm eager to replace as much of my responsibilities as possible because there's always more I can do. Is there an area of the business where you just think, I have no idea how that works or I should know more about how that works? Yeah. I mean, there was areas like that that got us into trouble at the start, you know, really? like internet security. We had a security breach early on and I don't know shit about internet security, but I learned and, you know, we made sure we got the experts and it ended up being one of like the big stories about the founding and the building of on it was we had that big security breach and we found it internally, fortunately. And there was that moment where it was like, well, nobody's reported this. We could just kind of pretend it didn't happen or we could go out and let everybody know. And, you know, I made the decision like, look, if we're going to be the company that I want to be and stand for something that's different than the rest of the companies, which all in the news at that time, everybody was like, oh, they found out about it, tried to hide it. And right. They, two years ago, there was a huge hack. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I'm never going to be that because even if we are successful and I've hidden that thing, I'll never feel good about it. I might even self-sabotage the company itself because of my own guilt about it. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Exactly. The next so, you know, I made a firm decision to never look back at that point. Like no matter what happens, no matter where it goes, I'm just going to be open and transparent. So what were they? Was it just hackers looking for payment info or customer lists or something? They like were, that? Uh, yeah, they were collecting credit card data to presumably sell to some kind of unscrupulous you know, we caught it early and people changed their cards. So I think we mitigated the damage before he was able to sell it to the other buyer. But yeah, it was bad. So that was a professional operation. It wasn't just like, screw on it. I don't like shroom tech. Right, right, right. This right, was right. An, a business operation. Yeah, it, seemed, it, was, it was a very crafty kind of hack. That was an interesting one. And then, of course, you really look and say, you know, I should have been paying more attention to that. Even though it's uncomfortable for me, I don't like learning about internet security. I don't like the nitty gritty details. I'd rather just completely outsource that. As the leader of the company, ultimately, I'm responsible for everything. Like, it's my fault. No matter what happens here, it's my fault. And I think that's an important thing for any leader. Right. You can't shrug responsibility as a leader. Like, what happened in customer service? Okay, it's my fault. And that's what your team will respect you for and what the people will respect you for is because ultimately you do take that responsibility just like you take the credit. Right. Extreme ownership plus Extreme ownership. the buck stops here, man. Yeah, that's it. It's got to be kind of a burdensome feeling at some point though, right? 
or are you outsourcing that to your team thinking like, look, the buck stops here, but I have so many people that do a good job underneath me. Do you feel like you've stacked the deck so far and so well in your own favor that you don't worry about that? Or are you constantly waking up at night about one thing or another? It depends. I think risk management is also another key area that you're always kind of looking at. And I don't think you ever arrive at 100%. But, you know, I try to keep those percentages as high as possible. And I have a internal instinct on when I feel like those percentages are dropping, you know, something having to do with compliance or security or supply chain management or something like that. It just kind of varies, but we definitely have a lot of really good people and that's helped. I mean, I can say that I'm sleeping easier now than I ever have. Doesn't mean that right now the FDA couldn't come busting oh, with, with guns and fuck things up. But nonetheless, like I feel good about the team we have. Is that kind of your nightmare scenario, getting some sort of government shut down because shroom tech is not approved by <laughs> them as a medical treatment or some crap like that? Despite the fact that they could come in with guns and shut everything down, I'm less worried about them than California plaintiff's attorneys. You know, oh, like, you know, I was wondering about that. People do talk about, well, this is a supplement, but this is designed to act on your brain or it's a, you know, a, what's it, nootropic maybe. So are they going to regulate those one day? And then now you're strict liability because you're the manufacturer. Yeah. I think the key thing is, is that Onnit is about human optimization. It's not about curing any disease. And really a lot of the companies that get hit are either making really aggressive claims or false claims, or they're trying to say, Hey, we're going to prevent Alzheimer's with this brain supplement. That's not what we're about. We're about helping people perform better at whatever they are trying to perform at. So we're in a really good spot where that comes from. But nonetheless, that's probably the biggest concern of, I think, any company of this size is just, you know, there's a lot of personally motivated legal firms that are just looking for any reason to siphon some dollars into their coffers. And so in some ways it's good because it keeps you really on your toes and it keeps you tight and it keeps people from that's a good abusing it. But, yeah. you know, in certain cases, it's like, man, they're really able to overstep and get really aggressive. So it is a concern. If you haven't been sued and you run a business, your business is either small or you're the luckiest son of a bitch around because it's yeah. inevitable. I think. Yeah. We've had a couple little things, some patent stuff, things that we were just unaware of, didn't come up in the sure. research. You know, fortunately, we've been able to settle all of the little claims, but some of them have stung. Like yeah. some of them have really stung. And, yeah. and it's the tough part is you'll get faced with this decision. Like you got a 50% chance of winning. The cost of bringing this to trial is X. Yeah. $250,000 yeah, exactly. for a patent. Yeah. Minimum. So what do you want to do? Do you want to just settle out even though that you have a pretty good chance of winning? But if you lose, then you not only pay the legal fee, but then you got to pay the damages right, and it yeah. just, you end up settling, but then you end up paying somebody and then being like, God dang it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you did not invent taking protein out of hemp, you <laughs> son of a bitch, right? Like it's one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that, man. I'm telling you. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but podcasters, Guys with big shows got sued by this company that was like, we invented podcasting in 2012. And people are like, no, I've been doing my own show since 2006. What are you talking about? And didn't they invent like sequential numbering? Yeah, or something like, like we that invented too? playlists. What are you talking about? <laughs> people have been making mixtapes since 1968. You can't call it episode one or episode two. We invented that. Like what? What do you mean? And they settled with Apple for $8 million, which means they had a bunch of money to go after Adam Carolla and us and a bunch of other people. And we just kind of went like, all right, Adam, you go get him, man. Here's a couple grand. Yeah. And then they settled, and then finally that stuff got invalidated. But anytime, I think the broader message here is that anytime you step out and you create something new, even if you're creating something new that is still in the realm of something that already exists, podcasting, nutritional supplements, fitness equipment, 
it's almost by virtue of the fact that you are breaking new ground of any kind, you're also making yourself somewhat of a target, I guess, to put it in dramatic terms. Undoubtedly, and anytime you put yourself out in the public eye, period, with a company, you have more legal ramifications, but just talking to people who have their first video that goes viral or partnership that actually gets some reach, and then all of a sudden, instead of this nice little bubble of your friends and family that you've cultivated on Instagram, you got the big, wide open ocean of full of trolls and haters and assholes sure. and everybody out there. And that moment is like a real eye-opening moment, like, oh, wow. The world isn't this tiny little friendly place that I thought it was. Like there's predators yeah. out in the sea. It's like going from the reef out into the open yeah, ocean. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the predators are maybe not even harmful. They're just irritating. Yeah, totally. Jellyfish. Well, they're predators to your ego, right? right yeah, as soon as, sure. as soon as you shed, you know, the vulnerability of your ego and you're not worried about what they say, you know, you can thank them for whatever piece of criticism they provided being that it might have been constructive or at least sympathize, you know, with the pain that caused them to write that comment in the first place. If you can get to that state, then the predators are no longer predators. They're just other fish. Right. That's a state of evolution that I think everybody has to get to. I assume it's an ongoing process, but it, did you hit a hard wall when you first started putting yourself in the business out there? Did you realize like, wow, I'm getting fired on from every rooftop? It was crazy. Like I went on Rogan's show I went on as just his friend for the first two shows, and then I went on as his business partner selling Alpha Brain, and that was a whole other level of things that kind of came up. And there was people who were building like anti Aubrey Marcus websites. It was so gnarly, and I remember it really took me for a tailspin. So I reached out to the two people I knew who had some experience with this. First was Bodie Miller, who was one of the founding investors, and he actually has the distinction, or I had at the time. I don't know if someone's finally topped him for the most hated athlete in U.S. history. Before Lance Armstrong, though, right? This was before Lance Armstrong. Okay. So it was also more than when O.J. was doing the Bronco chase. Wow. Like, he beat that. Because in the Torino games, he was scheduled to win, like, supposed to, he was on the cover of all the magazines. He was supposed to win all these gold medals. Well, Bodie parties and he skis. Like, that's what he's always done. So in Torino, what did he do? He partied and he skied. Happened to be that he didn't win and he crashed. Also fully like normal for Bodhi. Like yeah. he either wins or crashes. He always parties. So he was completely on brand, but the press caught him partying. You know, the conventional story is if you party, you're not taking it seriously and right. you can't perform. So they had these pictures of him partying and then he didn't win the medals. And then so people thought like you had all this potential, you let America down, you could have won, you oh, know, man. getting death threats and everything. So I went to him and I had known that story and I was like, Hey man, like, what do I do? He said, listen, like, you and only you can be the judge of yourself. Like all the people who are pumping your tires, can't listen to them. All the people who are telling you how terrible a job you did or how awful a person you are, you can't listen to them either because nobody has the facts. Nobody actually knows the truth other than yourself. How hard did you work? What did you do? You know, how honest were you? And as long as you follow those internal checks and balances, then that's all you really need to worry about. Kind of like that old maxim, don't read your own press, the good stuff and the bad stuff. Yeah, you can't because you can't take one seriously without taking the other seriously. That's a good point. You know, it just kind of goes hand in hand. And I think a lot of times actually people will not take the praise seriously, but take the criticism. seriously. Oh, yeah. Is that not normal? Is that not how everyone does it? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fairly normal. Like scroll through praise, All, praise, yeah. praise, praise. How dare you? Yeah. It's oh, I got 10 new reviews. 
Nine of them are five stars and they're full of high praise. One is three, this, <laughs> and then I'll read that 87 times and I'm got to take deep breaths and realize this is one and maybe a hundred reviews is like that. Yeah. And the person's like, I hate this show because host sneezed into the microphone and didn't edit it properly or something. And you're like, oh man, I'm just going to let this ruin my whole day. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's definitely the instinct. I think that's something to fight against just to take it more as like computational data more like as a data analytics. Oh, excellent. This thing got a lot of this praise and, you know, this thing got this criticism. Interesting, you know, and then just carry forward without taking that on yourself and also not trying to instantly defend. I think that's something that in Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, he makes such a beautiful point about. It's like when you get that insult to the ego, instead of the initial impulse, which is to defend and eviscerate the attacker, like, let it wash over you. Make sure that you're okay with that. And it's so hard to do it's that. so hard. Yeah, yeah, so hard. But when you do and you realize that you're strong enough to fully receive it without fighting back, that's like actual strength. And then you can use your mind to say, well, that didn't really make any sense. Right. But just receive the full insult and allow it to be that like hormetic stressor to your ego that like challenges it and then just let it wash over you, breathe through it and then come out the other side. It's much easier said than <laughs> much done. Much easier said than done. But I do like it. It does feel almost like an acid wash in a way where it can sting. And I don't mean the negative review. I mean even something in your personal life. It can be petty or it can be a real legit piece of criticism. You let it wash over you and then afterwards you're better off for it, right? You're shinier. You know, the acid washes off all the crust because it really points out you are worn down where you have any kind of little fault. If something is totally untrue, I find, at least if something is completely untrue, like Jordan's fat and his hair is falling out, I'm just like, this person's a moron. There's no burn, right? It just washes over and nothing happens. Aubrey screws goats. Yeah. No. How do they know about that? <laughs> How do they find that out? If it washes over you and you feel like, oh man, this one thing this person said, you know it's got that kernel of truth. Even if it's not really true, it's just you're afraid of that part being true. I can lose some serious sleep over that stuff. It points out your insecurities too. Yeah. You know, like it can hit on something that could be deep from the past. Let's say it's if you had a speech impediment growing oh, yeah. up, you worked on it your whole life, something referred to, you know, <laughs> you know, and then it could trigger something deep or it could just be something, you know, you're deficient on currently. So there's lots of things that'll point out, but it just highlights those chinks in the armor because lots of things will crash against you, like against your dragon scales. And the ones that come through, like you said, and you feel the Somebody's prick. been watching Game of Thrones. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. That was so good. That was so good. If you haven't seen it, you're missing out. <laughs> you're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and his guest, Aubrey Marcus. We'll get right back to the show after these messages. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. 
And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates, all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. And now back to Jordan and Aubrey. We talked before about the branding of Onnit and how you had been looking for mottos and slogans, but I want to jump back even earlier. If you told me in 2010, 2011, when this was starting to come together, right, that you were going to dive into supplements and or fitness equipment, not just me, any business investor would have said, it's too crowded of a space, there's too much competition, the margins are too small, this is a terrible idea, and who the hell are you to start a business in this particular niche? I assume you got some feedback like that when you were running these ideas around. Of course. What did you take from that, and why are we sitting here in this super successful HQ instead of you having done something else and taken that advice to heart? I think it's because I'd had experience with supplements since I was a kid. You know, my stepmother had formed a supplement company called Xanderbal and was a nutraceutical doctor for the LA Lakers, Miami Heat, New York Knicks, all kinds of different people. So I got used to taking supplements growing up and I knew that they were effective. And then eventually as I got older, you know, I'd have a stack of supplements for a basketball games, stack of supplements for test day. I'd have different things that I'd take. And as I got older and I didn't have my stepmom to lay out supplements on a napkin, I realized like there was a deficiency. I wasn't getting the same efficacy that I could get if she could kind of combine the ingredients for me. And so that always stuck in my mind. And then I went to see other doctors, did some brain scans and tests and realized like to get what I needed, I would have to have like 30 bottles, you know, to really optimize what I was looking for in a given day. And the ratios would be all off, the ingredient sourcing and the binders and the fillers. Like I didn't feel that confident that anyone was doing as good a job as they could for what I was looking for. I wanted something really simple. Like instead of 10 bottles of something for the brain, I wanted one bottle that encompassed everything. And so I really felt like there was a need and I was going to be the number one customer. And I think that's a good place to start. And rather than looking out and saying, I think I could build this widget that, I mean, I would never use it, but you know, I think it would be good. Right. Everything with on it was about the stuff that I loved and wanted and could use. And the same thing with the fitness equipment. It was, man, I'm really interested in mace training. You know, I've done the research on what the Persian army and the Palwani wrestlers were doing and looked at the old strongman stuff. And where do you get this? Oh, there's one place that's back ordered out in. The guy makes them. Yeah, makes them, makes them, you know, welds them himself. Right. And I was like, there's a market for this and I want it. And so I wanted to make it. So. I think that's part of the secret. Part of the secret is I was making stuff for nothing else, making stuff for me that I knew that I really wanted. And it just turned out that a lot of other people wanted the same thing. And now you're in a place where you can actually popularize something new. I mean, I'd heard of mace training because I did martial arts with weirdos when I was in high school and they were like, oh, yeah. hey, here's this thing. I don't know what it's called, but it's really good for training. And I think Russians use it. And it was a kettlebell. And I saw one in like 1994. 98, whatever, maybe a little bit before that, then there's like a 10 year or 15 year gap. And now everyone's using kettlebells. 
we just didn't have a name for it. And people were making them. And I thought like, wow, you know, we were trying to figure out who, how to order these things from. Now you're in a place where you can popularize something like with the Mace yeah. training. When you guys come out with something new, I feel like it's sold out overnight on the website and people are talking about it constantly. So you're in a place where you can not only create things that you're gonna use, you can create new trends. It's a cool spot to be yeah. in, but you know, before that happens, we don't wanna break the streak. You know, We gotta battle test these things ourselves. So before anything new comes out, I mean, there's hundreds of samples going out. You know, We're beating them up in the gym and making sure that this is something that's really viable. But if it passes those criteria, our athletes like them, our regular gym members like them, I like them, everyday people like them, then we know we have something. Usually that translates well to sales. Are there any ideas that you have thought were going to be amazing, but maybe are not out of the can yet? Like, this is a sharp mace, or like, you know, <laughs> this one is a machete training. Oh, this is not going to work out. Well, there's some that are interesting, and I think I'm still within the scope to be able to talk about this. But, you know, we're trying to decide whether we have a partnership with Marvel. You know, obviously we've made the Iron Man kettlebell. We made the Captain America bumper plates. And one of the most iconic pieces of equipment on the Marvel Universe is Thor's hammer. Sure. Right? And so we're just really trying to figure out, like, is this a functional piece <laughs> of training equipment? Or is Mjolnir just this legendary comic book novelty? That's like an interesting choice. And it's been like a full year dilemma where sometimes we'll be like, no, it can be used like this. It's dope. And then we're like, but not really it's still worse than a kettlebell for that and it's there's things like that that like fuck yeah i'd love to come out with thor's hammer but is it gonna pass the test is like being a functional piece of fitness equipment or is this just an absurdly heavy novelty right yeah good point who sits here and talks sense into you when you come up with bad ideas if ever there's got to be somebody who you bounce things off of it says no man it's our c-level team our executive team they're pretty good about voicing their opinion you know i'm pretty good about asking it I try not to get emotionally invested in too many things. There's a few times where, you know, I've certainly failed that test. Yeah. I wouldn't grade myself anywhere near 100 at that. Also, just talking to other leaders, and I think it was Simon Sinek who makes this great point, like leaders speak last, really making sure that I get people's opinion before I color the stage with my own. And that's something that I'm really trying to adapt. So rather than coming straight out of the gate in our meetings, like, this is the agenda. You know, this is the way we're going. You know, I'll ask a question instead. Like, what do you guys think about prepared meals? What do you guys think about these? How do you like the, how these taste? You know, and start getting feedback right off the bat, ultimately following with any rebuttals that I have or any points that need to be made. It seems to be the most effective way to get buy-in and excitement and really make sure that everyone feels like they're heard. If people are afraid of your reaction, they'll just tell you what they think you want to hear. Yeah, that's which huge. Is basically the fastest way to ride the plane straight into the mountain. How have you headed that off? I mean, of course, you can try to not be emotionally invested in a decision, but if you do feel strongly about something, then what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just very comfortable in creating logical arguments, logical constructions. So even if we end with disagreement, I will carefully illustrate my point. And I just really rely on logic, like 100%. I took in philosophy, like symbolic logic, which is actually taking oh, logic and oh, mathematizing yeah. it. That was one of my favorite disciplines. And so I'll have them and I'll force them to build their logical construction. And then I'll build my logical construction and I'll say, all right, the difference is this presumption that I have versus this presumption that you have. And there's no way for us to reconcile the difference between these two presumptions. So I'm going to go with my instincts and my take on this. I fully respect yours. And you may be right, you know, but at that point they're like, Okay, I get it. Here's the difference. Here's the evidence supporting his difference. Here's my evidence supporting mine. 
We're going to go with that one. You just got to test it. It's cool. And then we'll test it. The other thing too is, you know, they have to trust that if you're wrong, you'll admit when you're wrong. So you actually have to do that part too. (laughs) Yeah, you have to do that part too. So yeah, admit when you're wrong and don't ever react emotionally. Like you said, that will just prevent the honest feedback that you need. You'll just get a room full of sycophants. I've been there in the past coming close to being like, I don't like that guy. And then going, wait, why? Oh, well, his delivery does suck, but... The reason I don't like the delivery is partially because I don't like the message and the message is these are bad ideas and that makes me feel bad about my ability to be a leader, which is all on me. It's probably unwise to get rid of the one person who's like not afraid of you on the board or the person, the one manager you have who's not afraid to go, this is terrible. Even if they say you're a moron, not great delivery, but what they mean is this is bad for the company. Maybe we should think about this. Those people are hard to find because most people care more about their jobs than they do about making sure that the company long term is going to be healthy. Well, the thing is, when you start rewarding those people instead of punishing them, then all of a sudden the culture shifts. Then it's like, oh, if I have an idea or if I can make a, you know, a dissenting opinion that matters in that case, we're like, you know what, man, you were right. Like, I really appreciate that. Like, you saved us this. Like, thank you for going against the grain, disagreeing with this. If you can build that in, then all of a sudden you have everybody looking to form the other side. So you just have to reward the intelligent dissenting opinions instead of punishing them. How do you do that inside this company? Are there formal awards where it's like, hey, the guy who saved our butts this week is Jordan. He's going to get a paper plate with some macaroni glued to it. Or is it really just a private note from you that says, hey, man, look, thanks. Good looking out. A little bit of both. You know, sometimes it'll be in a company email. Like we have this, we call it, hey, everyone. It's this filter that kind of goes through the whole email. You save like the official company email, the full team email for super important stuff. But like a, hey, everyone is if we have a social or something else that's coming out and that would be the appropriate venue to say like, hey, everyone just want to let everyone know that so-and-so in the tech department killed it, caught this bug, saved us a bunch of money. If you see him, give him a high five. Nice. Like you'll see those kind of going around and and really so much, you know, people want to be proud of what they do and they want to know that the work that they've done is recognized. And that really goes a long way. Even the emotional reward is... It's huge. Huge. Yeah. And I think a lot of times if you don't give that, you have to overpay to keep people. You know, like we have a really low turnover rate. We've had just three or four people quit like total in in the history of the company. Oh, wow. And, you know, we've had to let people go because they didn't fit, but a really low turnover rate. And I think part of it is because of the recognition and then also providing them an environment to thrive. But I've been in companies where that wasn't the case. And everybody had to just get constantly overpaid because, you know, you have to pay for their loyalty and pay for their ability to stay if you're not giving them any of the other satisfaction points about their job. So it's actually more expensive to not emotionally support. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, 100%. Take that note. Because <laughs> I think a lot of people just feel like you should feel good about it yourself or people know when they've done a good job or uh, his bonus will reflect our gratitude for him. It's a really cool moment, I thought. I think it was the 2015 Super Bowl, 2014 Super Bowl playoffs. It was when the Seahawks were playing the Green Bay Packers, and it was a clash of two coaches. Mike McCarthy, kind of the old school, get on your ass, chew you out if you make a mistake, and then Pete Carroll, who was all positive reinforcement. And like Russell Westbrook threw like three interceptions the first half, playing like a horrible game. And every time he came off the field, Pete Carroll was like clapping, like patting him on the ass. Like, you got this, man. I believe in you. I believe in you 100%. You know, there was no question that who was going to start the second half. He was like, he believed in his guy. 
And of course, you know, he turned it around and they started making this great comeback. And as they were making the comeback, Mike McCarthy started acting the other way, started chewing people out, started getting people's faces until finally the Seahawks needed an onside kick in that onside kick, kicked the ball and the tight end, I think the guy's name was Bostic, bobbled the ball, you know, on the line, right? The Seahawks recovered. So if the Seahawks scored a touchdown, they would win. So instead of rallying his offense and being like, you got this, guys, you got this. Instead of rallying his offense, he got right in Bostick's face and spent the whole next minute yelling at him as if he tried to drop the ball. Right, sure. As if there was any reason that he needed to be yelled at at that moment, where instead that head coach 100% should have got in front of that defense, in front of his defense, and been like, you guys are the best defense out on the field right now. You're going to stop these guys. You haven't stopped them all half. Doesn't matter. You're going to stop them right now. I believe in you. But he didn't do that. And guess what? Seahawks rolled down, scored the touchdown, game over. That was like such a key moment for me to realize the different types of leaders. And I want to be that leader that supports and believes in my employees. When they make a mistake, they come in feeling horrible. Like our internal judge is strong. We're going to beat ourselves up worse than almost anybody. Like Bostic, you think he didn't feel bad? You yeah, think he wasn't sure. crushed at that moment in the next day? You think he didn't punish himself enough? You need to add more on top? No. It's the same with your employees. Like they're going to feel horrible when they screw up and you can let them know like, all right, this was a mistake, but you know what? I believe in you and I believe that you're going to make up for this tenfold. You do that and then you get people feeling better about themselves, doing better work and being willing to put themselves out even more so. Do you find this meshing over into your personal life, the leadership skills and things that you've learned from running on it? Or do you think you were like that in your personal life and you're bringing that into your leadership here? No, I think personal life is harder. <laughs> is it? Yeah. The don't get emotionally invested thing is not <laughs> yeah. working out as much. Because those people who are really close, they have their fingers on more triggers. You recently got married, right? Your wife probably has the ability, if she wants uh, to, to yeah. piss you off worse than anybody, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like they know where your buttons are. They put them there. They put the buttons there. <laughs> <laughs> initially they know of course they know they installed the they button. wired those things in <laughs> so with that you know it's very easy to get escalated or to get feel resentful or there's so much availability for insecurity in those type of relationships too so more things can come up it can be harder to really do that and not kind of lash out and not kind of play that tit for tat game where oh you did this and you said this well how about this bam playing this kind of back and forth what dom miguel ruiz calls like hooking someone's attention or pushing off your poison onto them and then they'll take it and let it fester and then push it back onto you really being mindful of stopping that practice is really essential but definitely hardest when you're in a relationship speaking of your personal and professional life you've got a unique personal brand that is in many ways distinct from what you do with on it can you explain both sides of that coin and how and why you keep them separate and to what extent that you do that it ultimately is a form of, it's all human optimization, but the line of demarcation between my personal brand and on it is anything having to do with spirituality. I feel like it's a very kind of personal journey. On it is a very kind of generally applicable, here are the base needs of a human being. Here's the base mindset practices that really apply universally. And the spiritual side, I think it's just a very personal journey. So whatever I do with psychedelic medicines or my own kind of personal practices, even meditative practices and some of those things, I try to keep that on my own side and make it more, these are my personal experiences. Maybe you guys can gain from these personal experiences. Maybe you can't, but I just try to share those as openly as possible. 
and kind of use that as the rough line. But there's some crossover. I mean, on it supported some certain base meditation practices because mindfulness is going to be universally applicable. But going down to Peru and drinking ayahuasca, certainly not universally applicable. Yeah, you know, no, like you don't want to recommend that to everybody. So and I don't even on my personal side, of course, either. But yeah, just kind of putting that dashed line. All right. If you want to hear me talk about that stuff, follow me personally. If you want to hear me talk about, you know, training and, you know, a fighter's mindset and all of that, well, then follow me on the Onnit side. We'll be right back with more from Aubrey Marcus after these brief messages. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. And now for the conclusion of our interview with Aubrey Marcus. Are you at all? And if so, how are you mindful of, all right, I've got a bunch of people that really trust me to help them work out their body. They got the mace and they've got the alpha brain and they've got hemp force in their cupboard at home. I don't necessarily want to lead them into ayahuasca journeys or because it's not for everyone. How do you set that line and how are you mindful of, all right, I don't want to bring everybody who's trust me via on it into the realm of my personal influence? Yeah, I think part of it is just not to be a salesman about it. Just tell the stories, but also tell how terrifying and painful and how much it sucks. You know, you're going to be vomiting and shitting yourself and facing your worst fears. You know, like, where do I sign up? Yeah, exactly. Like, this isn't the carnival ride, but if it's something that appeals to you and you really feel strongly about it, then pursue the path, do the research. So I think it's just a matter of telling it like it is and not being invested in whether they do or whether they don't. I have no dog in the fight other than the truth. And so I'll tell the truth. And if the truth's helpful, great. If it's not, I guess to really answer your question, I don't really worry about the outcome so much as long as I'm being honest and being mindful. And sometimes I'll have to go back. Like I released a podcast recently after a, a psychedelic journey that I went on. And I was so excited about the psychedelic journey that I didn't put any of the caveats in. Any disclaimers and things like that? So what I did is when I recorded the intro to that podcast, it was my recent podcast with Corey Allen for anybody interested. So when I released that in the intro, I came back and I said, all right, guys, I'm about to very excitedly talk about a recent psychedelic experience I had, but know that psychedelics aren't for everyone. And this is not me endorsing this for you, et cetera. So I've become more mindful of that now just because I know that my influence is out there and I don't want to unintentionally sway people. But then I don't also want to tamper my own exuberance. Like I was really that excited when I recorded that podcast. So I don't mind having that out there. I just also want to make sure I present the other side of the coin. So what advice do you have for people who are like, well, I don't know. I like Aubrey. He seems like a good guy. I like Onnit products. Maybe I should look into the psychedelic stuff. What do you advise those people to do or not do or where do they begin? Really, psychedelics are just an extension of another way to find a different vantage point, change your perspective, get really still. You know, so I always ask people, well, have you gone into a sensory deprivation tank? Have you gone floating? You know, have you tried shamanic breath work or holotropic breathing where you're using it's like a little bit beyond Wim Hof breathing where you're actually using the breath to hyperoxygenate yourself to such a point that you can actually get out of your normal pattern of thinking. Like, have you tried that? Have you tried yoga? Have you tried meditation? Like, there's a lot of steps you want to try before going down the psychedelic path. But then if it's still being drawn to you, all right, then start looking at the research, you know, start looking at which psychedelic medicines have clinical trials. There's a ton coming out on psilocybin and depression and major anxiety, a ton coming out on MDMA and the release of trauma 
You know, there's stuff with ayahuasca and ibogaine for addiction. There's lots of different things. So start doing the research as to which path you want to go under. And then, you know, really check yourself, see why you're doing this. This isn't, you know, some spiritual Boy Scout badge, which yeah. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Well, I drank ayahuasca, bro. I'm, am I in the club? Yeah. Like, double, I don't double know. Double jump, chest bump, high <laughs> yeah, five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, that's not it. I mean, this is about very personal work that can be wildly helpful. Or if you're not ready, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, doing it for your ego or getting rushed into it or your friends are dragging you into it, it may be the absolute wrong thing to do. Do you bring lessons from your psychedelic journeys and things like that back to the business in some way? I would imagine the emotional things you mentioned earlier have to do with that at some level. Yeah, checking your ego. You know, that's a huge thing because you start to see where your ego is and see where your biases are. I mean, it allows you to have a vantage point outside of yourself where you can look back at your identity and be like, oh, wow, I'm really doing this or I'm applying this pressure or I've actually been treating this person in a certain way that I didn't intend to be treating him that way. So that's a big part, but also the fundamental principles by which you operate. I think one thing when you take psychedelics is a deep understanding of the law of reciprocity. You know, that idea that you should give as much as you receive. And I think we all have that inherent understanding. And I think that's something that Onnit is guided by. Like we always want to give as much or more than we receive. We want to run a positive deficit in the reciprocity bank. You know, we want to be making more deposits than withdrawals. We don't want to take someone's money and then under deliver the product and under deliver in service and make it hard for them to get their money back. You know, we want to make it as easy as possible for them to get their money back. They're not happy and make sure the product's as good as it can possibly be. And the service that follows up and the emails that we send have actual value instead of just more sales hooks. That's always the goal is to just make sure that we're constantly running a positive balance. You know, some people get funny about money, you know, and they're like, how oh, you can do psychedelics and still run a multi-million dollar business. For me, it's really simple. It's about if every transaction has a positive reciprocity balance. As long as every single microtransaction is doing somebody a service and we're receiving compensation in equal amounts to that service, like I'm fine with that. And then from that point, whatever resources I accumulate, then at that point I can do other cool things and big things like support, you know, MAPS, which is one of the nonprofit organizations out of the Bay Area that's doing some incredible psychedelic research or develop new platforms or projects or things like that. Like I'm comfortable with how I'm doing that. But the key is, is that on the very bottom level, every transaction is something you can support. How do you know when a transaction is going to be something that's going to allow you to sleep at night collectively? You know, I think it's an understanding of what you're actually providing, what and how you've done it. Have you done it through your own form of trickery or chicanery that's, yeah. I hooked them in through this neuro-linguistic programming <laughs> yeah. and got them to buy some crap product, you know? got them to get this thing and then made it really hard for them to return it. Or there's lots of marketing tricks that are legal that are still immoral. And, you know, there's been moments where we've stepped over that line and had to be like, damn it, that wasn't cool. And had to go back and adjust things. It's not like we get it perfect out of the gate every time. Like we came from the heavens and just have this natural instinct that's always right. But that's our guiding star. And so if we overstep, we correct it as best we can. And Try to do that in innovate ways. I mean, I guess with our money back guarantee is one good example is usually you have to return the product, which in itself is this kind of this game. It's a deliberate hurdle that you know people aren't going to do that. Unless you buy like just in super bulk or something. So we know you're gaming. If you buy any of the normal sizes of our products, you can just call us up and be like, hey, I didn't like it. And you don't have to send anything back. We'll just give you your money back. You know, we'll look up your order number for you. Just give us your name. Tell us you didn't like it. And your money will be put back in your card. 
And people are like, oh man, don't people take advantage of that? No. A certain small percentage. Yeah, a small percentage. But more people, after they do that, maybe they didn't like that one product, but like, man, that was cool. Like that was so easy. That was the easiest thing. I have. can try other things now and they feel comfortable doing that. So it ends up building more loyalty in customers. Like if we have a customer who bought two things, returned one, that's a good customer already because they're discerning and they're like, oh, well, I like this one. I didn't like this one. That person's likely to try other stuff and then find other things that they like. And really, they're really interested, invested into their health and into their optimization journey. I assume at one point you were like in your kitchen putting things into bottles. Now there's a huge warehouse here. There's different departments around where we are now. I didn't see anybody shoveling pills into bottles, right? That's happening somewhere else. Yeah, that has to be done at FDA, GMP facilities throughout the country. You know, I think one of the things that you learn is there's some things about margin that I think in business type, like, you know, our gym is killing it. Like it's one of the best gyms in the country, been voted that by independent sources, yeah, you know, it the athletes. Awesome in there. And it had Captain America bumper plate. Yes, indeed. It's interesting to look at that and you would think, man, we gotta be just making a killing on that. We're not. It's really successful, but the margins on a gym, you know, I think as we were walking through are really small. So it's one of the things that I'm most excited about in the company, but it's making, you know, some of the least amount of money. Now it's not bleeding money, which is good because a lot of gyms do, but understanding like Sometimes you'll be emotionally excited about something in a far different proportion than the actual financial return is going to be. And just being able to reconcile and make sure that you keep that in line. Because obviously, if you continue to just follow only your passions and not worry about the bottom line, you're going to get in trouble. But if you disregard your passions, then maybe you're going to be less invested. Really finding that balance has been an interesting journey. On the one hand, you're really glad that you're not in the gym business in terms of paying your mortgage. On the other hand, you are glad that you are in the gym business and that you can lean back on on the rest of on it in order to be in the gym business, which you love. Exactly. Having that balance of what's really going to make you the money and then what really fires you up, you know, keeps you excited and how those things can support each other. Do you find that those are usually different things? Certainly earlier in the on it supplement game on it was both what you were extremely excited about and what was paying you the rent. Yeah. Generally, a lot of that can be. I mean, I think for me, the human interaction part of the gym business is what makes it so special. Like, I love the products, but it's not that I like the kettlebells more than the supplements. It's just that I like walking in and seeing my trainers and seeing the gym members and having an environment, like a cultivated environment that brings it over the top of the rest of the stuff. Like, I love the warehouse. Products come in, products come out, but it's not the same atmosphere as the gym. The gym is, it has a different energy and a different beast. So, Again, it's not that I don't love all of the products, but products are products. And then a gym becomes the accumulation of all of the people and all the energy and all of the environment in there. So I guess that would be the distinction. You're watching the rubber meet the road right in front of you, and you can literally smell it when you walk in, (laughs) (laughs) depending on who's in the gym. It was great walking through there. People were like, hey, man, what's going on? Doing their air squats or whatever with the kettlebell. You corrected some girl's form in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess they probably know that you uh, that you work here and on the gym. The jujitsu class was going on. And you're like, oh, my gosh, watch this guy. One of the instructors is dominating this guy. And it was really, you could just tell that the excitement level was there in a way that no matter how much you loved supplements, you probably would have a hard time getting excited about any supplement no matter what that was, unless it was like day one of the release and you just saw the new label, it would be hard to sustain that level of excitement for an inanimate object. Yeah. In that same tour, you know, we met with our wholesale manager and he had some really exciting news right. about Whole Foods. 
that's going to make me a lot more money than right. my black belt jujitsu instructor who just tapped some guy. But I was more, you probably noticed I was oh, yeah. more excited about Curtis getting an arm bar on one of his students while we were watching than I was about good news about Whole Foods, just because I don't know, there's something that I just really love about the people that I love and watching them do the things. And it's, it's that human connection that's really special. And also what motivates me with the business, it's not it's not the products, it's what the effects they have on people. When I hear like, oh man, I've never felt better. I've lost this much weight or I've accomplished this thing, taking your products. And that human side of it is really what motivates me because the rest of it is, is fun and it's important, but the motivation always comes down to the people. Is there anything that you would have done completely different from the ground up that you're maybe now unable to do that you think might've been better? Well, for one, as a human being, I would have liked to have worried less. I didn't enjoy the rise of on it nearly as much as I should have because I was terrified every waking sure. second that something was going to go wrong and take it from me. So I spent the first what could have been some of the most exciting years largely in a stress coma. I mean, I was still enjoying myself. I'm exaggerating slightly, but way more stressed out than I probably should have been. So if I could go back and correct myself, that's what I would do. If I could correct something in the company, I would say really force myself to be faster, like be more competent in the areas that I was weak, really force myself to work on my weaknesses as well as just continue to play off mm -hmm. my strengths. You know, like on the marketing side, really strong on the branding, really strong on the product development, really weak on the data analytics. And we're finally getting up to speed on actually using data to make data-driven decisions. We should have done that a long time ago. I should have been forcing that move a long time ago. You know, you have a tendency to play off your strengths and it served me well in life, you know, capitalizing on my strengths. But to really do this right, I think you also have to really aggressively work on your weaknesses. I think a lot of business owners, just regular employees, people in general, spend a lot of time, like you said, in a stress coma. What changed? Was it just one day did you wake up and go, man, we're killing it. I don't know what I was so worried about. I'm done with this. Or was there a slower build to this? Because I know exactly what you mean. Spent 14 hours staring at the ceiling trying to sleep or, you know, worked on a futon for four weeks straight. Yeah, everything hurts. I remember those days really clearly. And it was a lot of it was self-inflicted. Yeah. The biggest thing for me was understanding what the things were that couldn't be taken from me and really putting my faith in those things. And building upon that because the lawyers could come and they could take the company, they mm -hmm. could take the bank accounts, they could take that. But what would I have still left and how important was that? And what I would still have left is all the people that I treated well along the way. As long as I never misled people and, and tricked them and did something negative to the people, they would still believe in the next thing that I came out with or whatever else the next project was, you know, I wouldn't have lost them. And then the people, you know, my partners, my business partners, people like Rogan and Bodie and all of these other people, as long as I was completely honest with them and worked as hard as I could, they would stand by me, all my connections and all my friends. So I would have all the connections, all the friends, so many of the people still following me that it just gave me the sense of like, all right, yeah, maybe they do take everything. The company's gone, the house is gone, the cars are gone. It goes back to ground zero. I'm staying at the guest cottage at my Riding family's. Riding bike around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm staying at the guest cottage at my family's ranch and, you know, resetting for a while. But I'll already have so much momentum for the next thing. It won't be like starting from scratch. It'll be like, hey, this is what happened. It's a super bummer. But now we have this thing and it's awesome. And, you know, follow me on this journey, too. 
I think that really gives me a peace of mind. And I've had to play that premeditated scenario. I think every business owner plays that scenario. It's like, man, all of this goes away. And it's sad. You know, I love the house. I mean, this is part of my heart and soul. But being at some point at peace with the fact that, you know, I could lose it and I would be okay with that. I think that's a crucial thing for anybody to do. A lot of folks go, oh, well, you know, you just business partnered with Rogan, so you could have sold anything and he could advertise on his show for free. And, you know, you have this huge advantage in that area. Obviously, you cultivated that relationship beforehand. You didn't just call him and go, I've got this great idea, buddy. We can make some money. He gets those every day. What happened with that that made your idea better, special, more trustworthy, have more value for somebody like that? We were friends first. Of course, yeah. And how did I get to be friends with Rogan? That's the more interesting question, right? Because you know, people always want to do business with their friends, especially when their friends are competent. And even when they're not, actually. Yeah, that's true. A lot, a lot of times when they're not. But yeah, I mean, how did I get to be friends with Rogan? Well, we had a lot of common interests and I put in some work in some areas that he was interested in. I'd done a lot of research on different things. I'd gone and taken the psychedelics in jungles of Peru and done some of the interesting things that he was interested in. And I'd been constantly working on that aspect of my life, reading books and learning about the Bushido code and these things. So that when we had our first 30 minute meeting, which was about some trivial business meeting about a podcast advertising deal for his podcast before we were friends, what could have been a 30 minute trivial business meeting, like he has hundreds of times a year turned into a four hour meal and a friendship. Right. And that's because of a lifelong pursuit of gaining knowledge and being an interesting person to be friends with myself. You got to provide value in any kind of relationship. And for me, for Rogan, he wants to be surrounded with really interesting people, people doing interesting things and pushing their own boundaries. So for me, I mean, I think I was able to be friends with Joe because of the life that I'd led up until that point. And then, of course, finding the opportunity for the meeting. I mean, I'd wanted to be friends with Joe for years before I'd heard him do comedy. But we found, you know, an opportunity to have a quick business meeting. And then that turned into a friendship. And then from that friendship, you know, again, it was a question of how can I be of service? And I asked him, Joe, what supplement would you like more than anything else? And he said, well, I'd like a natural earth grown nootropic. Like the nootropics that are out there are all chemically based and they're good, but you pay the taxes on the back end. I'd like something that was plant based. I said, all right, I'm going to try and make the best one ever made. And when I delivered on that, then it was natural for us to kind of go into business. Yeah. So really, it was just about being of service, being of service as a friend first, and then being of service as a partner. Is there anything that I have not asked you? I guess if I had to wrap with one final message, I would give everybody. It's just to have fun. You know, like, don't play everything as if it's life or death, even though it'll feel like it's life or death. Yeah, easier said than done, right? Easier said than done. But find, find a way to smile through it. You know, find a way to to enjoy all the struggle because it's always going to be struggle. I mean, that's the nature of the game that we play. That's why we're here. We're here to strive against nearly impossible odds, this almost insurmountable task that we barely make it through with our best effort. Like that's the best video game. You want a video game that you can barely just beat the final boss with all of the skills you've accumulated through the entire journey. That's like life. We want to have the resistance and have the challenge and barely be good enough. So enjoy that, you know, don't lament it. Don't wish for it to be easy because you get bored if it was easy. So enjoy the struggle and, uh, and have some fun. Aubrey Marcus, thank you very much, man. Of course, all the links to the supplements, to on it, to the maces that we're joking about putting through windows and car, and car windshields uh, will be linked up in the show notes as well. And uh, links to, of course, everything that you're doing here, including some of the stuff that's in part of your personal brand that is with the the disclaimer that we, what's it, neither recommend nor, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, they'll figure it out. Blah blah blah. Whatever. Don't 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 blame me if you trip balls on ayahuasca and then you know do something don't like stupid. It. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. Thanks everybody. Great big thank you to Aubrey Marcus. Check out on it, man. I'm telling you, they don't sponsor the podcast, but I love their stuff. I got a bunch of their equipment, and I could tell you, I could live on this buffalo jerky they sent me home with as well. I'll tell you that buffalo and cranberries. It's delicious. Just trust me. You will not be disappointed. Everything I've had from there is just amazing. Jason, do you use any on it stuff? I've been known to knock back me a few alpha brains here and there when I need me a good pick-me-up or when we're doing a long show round for the day. This stuff keeps me going, man. I love it. Ah, and we do have a 10% off deal on it, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash charm. It's cool if you go there because they know we sent you, but you, more importantly, you get 10% off and you get some goodies in addition to that. So check that out if you're interested in trying those products. We'll link to that in the show notes. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Aubrey on Twitter. We'll have that linked as well. And tweet at me your number one takeaway from Aubrey. I'm at the art of charm. You can find the show notes for this episode at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. And we've got our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, your thinking skills. It's free. It's designed to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum in your spare time. It's all online. You can do it from the comfort of your home but we're taking you out of your comfort zone, so there is a little bit of a twist there. And it's free. That's a, the whole idea is to get you moving forward and applying the things you're learning on the show in your life. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes a lot of great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. It will make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. You can text in if you text AOC to the number 38470 or go to com slash challenge. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Creepy theme music by Little People, transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net, and I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay AOC and myself, for that matter, the highest compliment, and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment, and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends and enemies. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.